Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome to the program. My name is Brooke Taylor in for Timory. Interesting conversation kind of segueing from Kale Clark's talk about music. And that's actually the Christian group Big Daddy Weave, Mike Weaver, the lead singer, dying last year. But just such a beautiful song that's called Redeemed. This is trending. Welcome to the show. It's Thursday, too, which means it is marriage hour. And here on the program, today's show is a little different when it comes to that theme. But I hope that you will find it all ties together. Sometimes we can forget who we are. We can get lost along the way. And Certainly in our flesh, we can run from the cross, but that is the very thing meant for our redemption and glory. And in today's readings, the first reading today, we had a chance to reflect on that. Second Timothy 1, 1 through 8, do not be ashamed of your testimony to our Lord, nor of me, a prisoner for his sake, but bear your share of hardship for the gospel with the strength that comes from God. So today's guest will bring us into this reality, the transforming grace, the mercy of God, that hound of heaven, and a testimony that remains for me one of the most powerful that I've ever heard. Really looking forward to bringing you the story of Paul Darrow. He is a former gay activist, international male model, atheist, to Catholic convert who now dedicates his life to serving Christ, helping others around the world. And it is a story that includes open homosexuality, promiscuity, pornography, drug abuse, and an encounter with a nun wearing an eye patch who changed his life. So all of that we will get to. And and I do want to mention also, as you can imagine, there are some sensitive topics that we will discuss. So fair warning for little ears, some details may not be suitable for all ages. So as we get going, I just want to make sure to offer that disclaimer. And also want to give you the studio line. It's one 914 So feel free to be a part of the conversation as we go through the hour. As I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking about something that kept coming back to me as I was going over Paul's story and revisiting his life again. And I want to share a little bit of it with you because I think it's so across the board relatable. And it actually goes back to C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia for probably the last year and a half 
we have been working our way through the complete series with our youngest son, Gus. He's 11. And it's something that I started with him. I wish I would have done with, with all of our kids. We have four sons and a daughter. But where we are now, we're in the last story, and we just finished The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And so I want to kind of kick this segment off with that story, something that I read with Gus that blew me away. And I keep thinking about with Paul's story as well. It is something that revolves around a character called Eustace Scrub. Now, if you read the story before, you may already know where I'm going with this. But for me, it was a revelation and I had never heard of this. And so kind of instead of recounting what I read, I wanted to share an insight that was beautifully written by Mark Herringshaw. It's entitled, I Am Eustace Scrub, Undragoned in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And it goes like this. He said, Dawn Treader is Eustace's story and mine, how a human soul can descend to monstrous depths and then find unexpected and undeserved redemption through surrender to the one alone who can convert. Now, this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, by the way, if you've not read the story, but on an island where Eustace is supposed to be helping the mission at hand, he instead sneaks off and he finds a dragon's lair. And there, fed by his greed and all that he could want for his decadence and the hoard of treasure, he is transformed there into a dragon. At first, he relishes the power, but soon isolation and shame make him realize the truth. He is an intolerable monster, and so he begins to want to change. That night, a lion comes to Eustace, telling him to undress out of his dragonness. Eustace tries to scratch at his skin. At first, it seems to work, as the scales slip off like a banana peel. But just as soon, Eustace discovers that another layer of dragon skin lies beneath the first. In despair, Eustace realizes he cannot cure himself— he isn't merely wearing a dragon suit. He is a dragon. But wonders never cease, and in Narnia there are miracles. Eustace, via C.S. Lewis, later describes what happens. Then the lion, as we know, that's Aslan, said, but I don't know if he spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, but I can tell you, I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off, the freedom. Lewis tells the truth. Conversion begins when we recognize we cannot change our own skin. There is no self-help soul makeover. I can never cure myself only if and only when I surrender to the one who rips deep the fibers of our dragonness can I hope to be the boy, the man that I was created to become. I am used to scrub then and now. Such powerful imagery. And, you know, reading that for my son, it was just a story, this theater of the mind. But for me, the theological implications and this character of Aslan as God is so powerful. And Fulton Sheen used to talk about our declaration of dependence, not that we are victims, but that we may surrender. And when we truly repent, we are detached from the sin that binds us and that we made an idol of. So it's a powerful story. And the idea 
that the one who has the power to transform us is waiting. And that is the story of Paul Darrow. He is a former international male model, gay activist, atheist. He enthusiastically embraced his addictions and gay identity for several decades. And then a series of grace-filled events turned his life around in amazing ways. His conversion story is so powerful that he was invited to speak at the Angelicum in Rome, where he pleaded with cardinals and other clergy to preserve the current teachings of the Catholic Church on homosexuality. And he is also featured in the award-winning movie Desire of the Everlasting Hills. We'll hear a little bit of that later in the show. And he's a member of Courage International and a recipient of its annual service award. My friend, Paul Darrow, with us today. Welcome to the program, Paul. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm very grateful to be a guest on Relevant Radio. Us as well. We get to do this again. It was a privilege to interview you a few years ago. So grateful to be able to reconnect again and and share your story. And just even right there in your bio, we have a little highlight reel with your life. But boy, is there so much more to your story. And I guess I just want to start, this is kind of your, your testimony here, to take us in this journey. For decades, you identified as an openly gay man. And, and maybe we can start there. Because one of the common phrases we hear is born this way. You know, the theory of born this way. Was that your experience? I thought it was my experience for many years. And I stood by that. Uh, and <clears throat> I think... Most people who are living the lifestyle uh, stand by that theory. Uh, they don't think of it as a theory. They think of it as a fact. But I believe they stand by it because, like me, they felt from their very first memory that there was something special about people of the same sex for men and other men, for women, it would be other women. And so from our memories, we, we had many of us had a longing, a longing to be with a a person of the same sex, for me to be with a man. And when I was young, it wasn't sexual. It never crossed my mind uh, about sexuality because I didn't really understand sexuality at all when I was in elementary school. But, But I was attracted to wanting to communicate with and be more like the boys who were manly, um, the older boys, or the teachers. And so, so, so I think that, that that definitely defined to me where, what I was, that I was attracted to men. Of course, even in those days, I didn't know the word gay or, or anything like that. But, but as years went on, yes, I felt I was born that way. And I can only imagine, I don't mean to interrupt, but I'm just thinking and knowing a little bit of your story and how things can get muddled because at the same time, you did not have a good relationship with your dad and your brother. You had been abused. And from an early age, I remember you saying, I admired, I admired, you know, men who were strong and capable, but things were muddled because there was a disorder in the fact that you were abused and then you also didn't have a good relationship with your dad and trying to find your way. Yes, I can say that I've had one of the worst relationships that a boy can have with his father or a teenager can have with his dad. He was violent, um, and um, I 
I think, you know, there was something wrong with him, actually, because there were two sides of him, but I never knew which side I was going to be dealing with. And so I lived in constant fear of being beaten to death or literally beaten to death or shot to death by him. And and I never had, and my brother was also violent, but he was more, it came more from a meanness that he seemed to have. And, and so I... I never really had a male figure at that time or for many years that I could respect um, that, that actually would a male figure with whom I mean, a person, a man who would communicate with me. I could respect other people that I didn't know for things that they did, but I, I really had no one in my life that I could respect as a male figure. And also on top of that, I was sexually molested three times by three older, an older relative, an older neighbor, and someone else who was a little bit older than me, all, all by the time I was 10 years old. So my introduction to intimacy, although I didn't see it as intimacy at that point, but my introduction to sex was through men. And it it was the first attention. I mean, it was a, seemed like a special attention that I was getting, and I, I know that had a major impact on on my life. And so, Paul, when I look back, yes. Did you have any uh, faith in God? Was there a belief, a prayer life, or a moral foundation? Where were you there? But I, I did not go to a Catholic school, but. I had a wonderful Catholic grandmother, Polish Catholic grandmother, uh, and relatives who were very faith-filled. And so I loved going with them to church, and, and, and my mother brought me to church. My father was an atheist, but my father said that someday I'm going to meet a woman and to get married, and I'll have to have some religion when she asked me what religion I am. So just for, just for that reason alone— uh, I ended up going to Mass every Sunday, and I loved the church. I believed in God. I was confirmed, and I, I fully embraced it, but I know very little about Catholic teaching, practically nothing. So it sounds like you have quite a roller coaster in your adolescence and growing up, and there was abuse in there. Obviously, we, we just heard about the dysfunction with your dad. A little bit of faith. God bless the Polish grandmothers. How many souls yeah. <laughs> they have saved with their prayers. Oh, my goodness. And then I know as a teenager and then a little bit older, you make your way eventually to New York, which is there. You're really able to kind of disappear into this decadence and uh, come out, so to speak, and indulge in this lifestyle. So can you take us into that experience? This is the 1970s, the Mecca, the height of the sexual revolution. So I imagine that that was something that you just took to um, because you could have that expression, I suppose. Well, actually, um, when I was 14 or 15, I, I stumbled upon a gay beach, and I had no idea that it was a gay beach. My aunt in Florida had a, had a restaurant in Miami Beach, and she said, "Go, you can go to the beach while, you know, while she was working, and I, I went to the beach. And so I went swimming, and I actually started to get attention from men, older men, they're, you know, in their 20s or 30s, and, 
and I couldn't believe they were asking me questions and talking to me, and, and one thing led to another, and I ended up going with one, not even knowing what was going to happen, but just having some idea, and uh, so that got me started. I mean, that really introduced me to the actual gay lifestyle. I didn't know what gay was, the word gay, until I was at that beach. And so by the time I, I was in college, I, I longed. Uh, I longed for the possibility of, of having a man who would love me. And I was very uptight that anyone would know I was gay. Um, that was for sure. But um, in all different sorts of ways, men would hit on me including the campus minister, uh, not Catholic campus minister, but so many things happened to me that just, that, that I had no room for anything else except, except for falling into that lifestyle. So in college, then you choose to go to New York, and I'm looking at the time we have to take a break in just a few minutes, and there's sure. so many points to your story in, in twists and turns, and that eventually, though, is I know kind of where you had the height of that lifestyle really for decades. Was was it there where it was in New York? And were you happy? Did that make you happy? Did you think at that point? Well, considering my background um, and what I went through, uh, I, I was a very happy boy. And I was really happy because I was from the country, uh, farm area, and I was really happy happy to think that that men would be interested in me and at, I wanted to be a, a college professor but I got seduced into the idea of becoming an actor and somebody well the manager said manager said to me the hardest thing to support the hardest thing about becoming an actor in New York City is to support yourself and so you should become a model a fashion model and and I never believed in the world that I ever could be one and so Becoming a fashion model uh, and and living this lifestyle and meeting movie stars and incredible, incredible famous people who wanted to be with me, um, it was like fireworks going off in my face. I really, yes, I was thrilled. I was thrilled. I was very, very happy. We want to continue. I'm going to take a break right now, but Paul Darrow is my guest this hour as we listen to his story, former gay activist, international male model, and atheist to a profound conversion, which ultimately brought him home to the Catholic Church where he is today and works with the Apostolate Courage, has dedicated his life to helping others. one 914 Our studio line is open. More with Paul when we come back. My name is Brooke Taylor. In for Timory, you're listening to Trending. We will be right back after the break here on Relevant Radio. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. My lover at the time we were living together was one of the first 900 people in the United States to be diagnosed with AIDS. It was very amazing to me because he had only been out about a year and a half. We were all frightened to death. We thought we would be the next people in those hospital isolation wards. And most of my friends, 90% of the people I knew, not even just my friends, but most of the people I knew in New York City in that era, 90 plus percent of them got AIDS and died. 
Welcome back to the program. And that voice, Paul Darrow, that you heard a moment ago, the actuality that we played, is from the movie, The Desire of the Everlasting Hills. Welcome back to the program. My name is Brooke Taylor. And Paul Darrow is with us for the hour. That movie, The Desire of the Everlasting Hills, available, I recommend checking it out, is an award-winning film. And in that documentary, it follows the raw and very real story of three people with same-sex attraction, Dan, Rileen, and Paul. And it is powerful. And before the break, we just got to the point in the story where, Paul, you had talked about moving to Manhattan and wanting to be an actor, getting involved in modeling and that whole Studio 54 lifestyle that we hear about and everything that went with it, from the lights to the glamour to the money and the decadence. But there was a dark side and and touching on that with the AIDS epidemic and in a very personal way, a tragedy that you experienced. So maybe you can bring us into that and the reality of this life that you are living and um, some of the challenges, many of the challenges. Yes, many of the challenges. And like you said, uh, some dark things in that lifestyle. And AIDS was uh, what should have been a wake-up call, but there were so many uh, so many other uh, dark uh, errors episodes in in my life and in my friends life lives that weren't even related to, to AIDS but with the AIDS situation uh we sort of I remember the first time I heard about AIDS I was on a on a, on a ferry to Fire Island and some guys were laughing they're looking at a newspaper and laughing and and I sort of looked towards them and they said oh do you know we have our own we have our own cancer now it's called gay cancer we have a gay cancer and um, and that was the first time I had ever heard about it. But within a very short time, my lover at the time, Jerry, was one of the first 900 people in the entire United States to be diagnosed with AIDS. And after living in shame or di- and dying in shame, uh, he died a terrible death when, as, as it shows in the movie, almost everyone else I knew living my lifestyle, living like we were, they were dying the same way. And so I was sure that I would be dead soon as well. Wow. And I want to bring something up. And again, as I said in the top of the show, there are sensitive topics that we will discuss. So fair warning for for little ears and be advised. But I want to bring up something as you just share that, that I don't think is talked about a whole lot. And even in instances where there's monogamy among partners, the CDC talks about the known propensity to abuse drugs and alcohol that goes hand in hand with with the LGBTQ lifestyle. They engage in riskier sexual behavior. They have higher rates of suicide. And, you know, the data, the CDC data bears this out when compared with the general population, that these individuals are more likely to be promiscuous, to have higher rates of, of heavy drinking even later into life. And of course, there's also the pornography aspect as well. And so, so I guess I want to bring that up because if there's so much contentment, if you're living free and 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 happy, what is going on with that? Why are there such dangerous and self-destructive behaviors that clearly are are very self-destructive? Well, you know, it's it, it creeps up on, on you. I mean, it, 
it was creeping up on all of us. We never sat down and thought, why are we doing these drugs? We never questioned why were some of our friends jumping out windows. Um, we never questioned uh, why some would end up in the East River and be found six months later floating in the East River because they OD'd on drugs uh, or, or, or something else. And so uh, we didn't realize that we weren't happy we, because we kept thinking that, okay, this is just, we're high tonight and the next day, the next three days are really gloomy and down, but we know that that's going to pass and, and we will meet our, our Prince Charming, our knight in shining armor. Uh, and, and what you had mentioned about uh, monogamy, what the CDC is saying is, is correct. And, and people are shocked by this, but I never knew two men. I can't say the same thing for women, but I never knew two men and who were truly in a monogamous relationship after a very short time. Um, they were always multiple partners and it always leads to that. And people thought I was at one point in my life when, when I had a lover, they thought, Oh, you know, we're the pillars of the community. Little did they know what we were doing. Um, when no one was seeing us. So, um, and, yes, I think it, it, it's a striving. It's a striving for something to answer your question. I think we were striving for some perfect thing that didn't really exist. And, and we do it through drugs. We do it through ruining our bodies or building our bodies up. I never did steroids, but so many people got sick from the steroids they would use to make their bodies beautiful in those days. You know, it's interesting. It makes me think of Fulton Sheen. He talks about the properly ordered person believes in repressing the excesses of the lower instincts in order to express his reason, his will, the potential for divine grace. And so, you know, we hear that phrase in a derogatory way, like, oh, you're, you're so repressed if you're not acting on these baser instincts. But the, 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 point is that you're actually expressing the higher instincts. So for example, an alcoholic man represses his desire for excess and drunkenness because he's expressing a love for his wife, his family and consideration. And so he's repressing what is base and low, not because you know the passions are wrong necessarily but because the excess of them is wrong and this is on account of love you know the the man that loves what is noble he will sacrifice and so that whole idea seems to to be absent for, for looking at even just those numbers of the CDC the data tells the story right there and and i can remember a story that you tell that when you were in new york you were at a gay pride parade and that something interesting occurred because again, here's Fulton Sheen, here is a voice of truth in great love, and it's rejected and, you know, been called hateful. And really, it's truly a love to want to speak to the self-destruction and to liberate the soul. And I remember you saying when you were in this parade, you passed every church, you went down marching, but it wasn't until you arrived at the Catholic Church that something happened. Yes, it was, uh, and it wasn't planned. There were so many of us, and, and so few of us actually knew each other, so we couldn't have possibly planned it. But as we approached St. Patrick's Cathedral, I could feel in myself, and I could feel in, in other people. Our adrenaline was rushing. For some reason, we we became, I guess, without knowing it, agitated from within, 
And when we got in front of St. Patrick's, all of us, as we passed, would scream and holler and swear and, and try to dis- disrupt mass. And as, as you mentioned, I, I really, back then, I didn't think much of it, except that we hated the Catholic Church, even though there was not one Catholic that I really hated. But somehow, we're swept up in the moment. We're doing what the other people do. Uh, we're influenced by our peers. And so, so we hated the Catholic Church. And, and when I think in hindsight, why did we not get upset with the Presbyterian Church or the Episcopalian Church or other churches that were on Fifth Avenue? between Washington Square and and Central Park, because they were of the same ilk. They had the same ideas. They were against abortion. They were against gay marriage. They were, um, in in those days, they were not too keen on divorce. And and yet, you know, we we just ignored them. And that's because they were smaller churches, because they're pretty huge. I mean, Presbyterians, Anglicans throughout the world. But but somehow, in hindsight, I believe is it's because something was written in our heart, that in our hearts, we knew there was some truth in that church that stood between us and what we wanted to be and what we wanted to do. You recount some specific incidents in your life that really stopped you in your tracks, that had a way of cutting through, and, and whether that was being in Rome seeing Pope John Paul II carrying the cross at the Colosseum on Good Friday, or witnessing you had talked about Jerry dying. These experiences had a way of waking you up kind of from this coma of indulgence. And and then also when you began to watch Mother Angelica on television, was that the moment where you felt like kind of Eustace, that de-dragoning moment where you where you begin to see life differently. When those tragedies occurred, did you did you ever think about God? Did you think about sin? I know in at some point you became just a complete atheist, but you talked about having that foundation of faith. Where was God through these years? Brooke, I cannot believe the words you just used. You took the words out of my mouth. So um to answer your question though, before I talk about those words, is yes, but there were momentary feelings in my heart. When I saw Pope John Paul II, um, uh, at the time, I was in the middle of trying to pick up some men around the Colosseum, and little did I know it was Good Friday, and I was within like 20 feet or less of him, of, of being with him and seeing him him having this huge cross, all, and he was all dressed in white. And I went back to my hotel rather than doing what I wanted to do that evening. But, by the, but later in the evening, um, I did what I wanted to be doing. And the same thing with what happened with AIDS. But what really surprised me, Brooke, is when Jerry and I, um, we never really talked about God or anything like that. He wore a cross that is grandmother had given him from Italy, but when he was dying in the hospital and just filled with fluids so that he was unrecognizable with Carposi on his face, and I knew it was one of the last moments that I would, well, days that I would see him, and when no one else was in the room, because I, I was with him all by myself then, I said, Jerry, do you ever think about God? And he he really couldn't hardly talk. And most of the time when I was with him in the room, 
he, he was sleeping, but his response forward me. He said, that is all I think about. And, and Brooke, that went right to my heart. And it goes to my heart today because it gives me such hope that our merciful, forgiving God will see Jerry through those eyes. But the idea that he, that he said that, and even though that he said that, and it was so shocking, and I loved hearing it, again, within it, when I got back to New York City, he, he was in, in northern New York, but when I got back in the hospital, but when I got back to New York City, nothing changed. So they were a little, they were little knocks on the head, but I have a hard head, and, and so, so did, did most of us. So did anything occur to you in, in some of your behaviors? This is sinful. This isn't right. Or was it really just kind of going on what you felt at the moment, pleasure seeking? Because we know how these things work and how the enemy works in spiritual combat. It's easy to have a gateway where you need more and more and it goes deeper and deeper and it kind of gets darker and darker. And so were there moments where you began to turn back to maybe have a conversion? It's, I mean, it sounds like they were fleeting and far and few between, but um, it took a while for you to actually, those knocks on the head <laughs> sink in, it sounds like. Yes, yes. And, and it was very fleeting. And I, I think, of, and, and it was so dark, because once you don't find the perfect lover, or he is the perfect lover, but you don't realize it, you think there's somebody better, you just keep going further and deeper and darker, and, and it, it brings you to literally... Of the face of evil. I mean, I, I, I saw the face of evil. And, and yet it never stopped me. But th there was one little incident very quickly that uh, I was in a, a back room in a, in a porn theater. And um, I asked this, we were doing things that I shouldn't have been doing with someone. And I invited him to come home with me. And he said, Oh, you know, I really can't because it's Christmas Eve, and I'm going to have dinner with my parents tomorrow. And in my heart, I thought, oh my gosh, it's Christmas Eve. I wonder if my grandmother could see me. And and, he, and, and so there were though that was a huge knock on my head. But the only knock that really sunk in was from a Catholic nun, an elderly Catholic nun. I'm telling you, the the older ladies are like the special forces. You talked about Jerry's grandmother and the cross that he wore around his neck from Italy and your grandmother and Mother Angelica. We'll get to her. We have to take a break, but I see that we have Amy on the line and I want to take her call before we get into the break. She is calling from Nebraska and with a question for you, Paul. Amy, are you with us? Um, thank you. And I just wanted to say, God bless both of you for this incredible show. I, I'm riveted. Um, I, I have two young thank sons you. and they're 13 and they're just coming up to, you know, puberty. And as you keenly know, the culture is just pushing all this relativism at them. And I'm just wondering if you have advice for me as a mom, how to help them wade through this. They, it, I'm, I feel like I'm battling a tidal wave and I just don't know how to help them kind of avoid some of what you went through? Great question. Well, you know, Amy, thank you for being the mother you are. And, and you, have, you have every ability to be the example that they need to see. And, and, and if they, you know, they, they are going to be teenagers and, and they are going to be pulled into the culture, uh, 
no matter what you say as a parent or a grandparent, but they will never forget how you were and what you did uh, for them as a, as, as a Christian mother. And so I think that you just may do your best to let them know how much God loves them and to let them know as much about Catholic teaching as possible without being preachy, without, you know, this sort of like uh, Religion 101, but rather just as a loving mother. And if you have any other relatives or friends who, are, who, who feel like you do and believe like you do, then sort of have them in, in these young boys' lives as well. Uh, but, um, and pray, prayer, praying from the heart. I believe that is the only reason that, that um, I, I, my eyes were open, because somebody mm-hmm. like my Polish grandmother was praying for me. Amen. The prayers of the righteous avail much. And and I would just add to as a mom of four sons, and obviously we're still in the thick of it, navigating it, and that teaching virtue, because whether they have uh, a, a strong heterosexual um, drive or same-sex, whatever it is, there's this need, obviously, to live virtuously in where we're called and to carry our cross. And the virtues help us navigate the many things that we and they are going to be inheriting as far as the the sins that are, whether it's transhumanism or moral relativism or all sorts of different things, the gender ideology. And so just take one virtue alone, take the virtue of temperance and that interior governance. We don't hear a lot about temperance and understanding the power and purpose of of pleasure and desire, which temperance moderates. So you take something like water, which is life-giving, for example, to be able to make use of water, we have to contain it or it'll spill out in all directions and become deadly, like in a flood or in drowning. And so the same thing, you know, the rightly ordered reason of natural law and moral law and how things have its place and and order and disorder. And just the other day, Lila Miller was talking about this and look for inversions and things that are upside down. But it is a constant battle because, of course, kids have technology and especially if they're teenagers and even if they're homeschooled, they may have exposure to that or video games and all number of different things. And Kale was talking about in his show, even what we watch, making sure that a woman's not being objectified or and and this is difficult whether you're watching football the super bowl or a movie and that's something that i think the dad really should take the lead on ideally but certainly as you're mentioning paul to live the catechism that is the greatest witness and one i know that you've dedicated your life to being faithful to and on that note i want to take a break and when we come back here about your first confession. Your first confession as a convert back to the church, a revert, I should say, and we'll do that. one 914 is the number to call. Paul Darrow is here. What an honor to hear his story. And we will be back. My name is Brooke Taylor, in for Timory, who is on maternity leave. And we will be right back here on Relevant Radio and the app. Listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888 914 9149. These are my sins. And because I couldn't 
I couldn't begin. I couldn't begin to name the numerous sins of my life over so many decades. And I'm not talking about a guilt because of my sexuality, because of my homosexuality. I'm just talking about what my lifestyle led me to be, my self-centered way, all about me, taking care of me, having a wonderful life at everybody's expense. I, I, I couldn't possibly begin to remember them all. So I went out the chicken easy way and I said, Father, I have broken all the Ten Commandments. And I didn't even remember what they were. And the priest said, including murder. And I laughed. And I said, oops, I forgot that was a commandment. No, Father, all of them except murder. And he was so kind and so polite and said nothing negative to me at all, but encouraged me and said that only God could have brought me back. Amen. Glory to Jesus Christ. That is Paul Darrow talking about his experience of going to the Sacrament of Reconciliation, confession, after many decades of living an actively gay lifestyle, much self-indulgence, decadence to go along with it. Welcome back to the program. It's Brooke Taylor with you in for Timory here on Trending. Paul, oh my goodness, in that clip, the joy, we can hear the, the liberation of absolution in your voice. What was that like? It was like walking on clouds. It was, it was, because it, it was so unexpected to, as to what would be happening in that confessional booth, because I hadn't been in a confessional booth in over 30 years. And, and I could feel something special, not only the beautiful words from the priest, but I really felt I knew that God was with me. And, and you know, I mentioned that I was very, very happy in the lifestyle. But I never, I can honestly, honestly say, I never knew what joy was. And I never, there was crying in that, in that clip. And those were tears of joy. And I had never cried tears of joy in my entire life until I came back to the church. Wow, that's profound. Uh, I want to take Mary. I want to. I wanted to go back and kind of bridge that gap of how you got there. And I hope we still have time. But I think it's important to hear from Mary in California, calling just to connect with you about her son. Are you with us, Mary? Yes, I am. Hi, you're Good on with Paul. Hello, Hi, Mary. Hello, Paul. Hello. Thanks I'm for calling in. With a night. Oh, thank you for taking my call. I'm struggling with a 19-year-old who had same-sex attraction. He's doing drugs, alcohol, um, just lying, just doing, you know, doing everything you shouldn't be doing. And we're Catholic, practicing Catholic. He went to Catholic school. And every day I tell him that God loves him, that Jesus loves him, to do the right thing. And I just don't feel like I'm getting through. I pray all the time. I just don't know what to do anymore. Mary, Mary, as you know, God hears every everything we say, everything, every request we have, but also it's in God's time. And when you think I was, I was forty years plus later before I opened my eyes, and you know, just just today, 
I, I saw an email that I hadn't seen. I would gotten it a while ago, but I, I didn't go into this website. And I saw an email from a young man. And um, he wrote, he, he thanked me for, for being there to, to, to try to help people. But he said, here's, here's what he said. I have it right in front of me. It is hard to escape or leave completely with all the technology and the evolution of por- and porn and the cruising and the sexual hookups in, the day, in this day and age. It is, a, it is practically as available as food in the store. And so the culture is feeding all of our children and our grandchildren this poison, this, this food. But again, there, there is a magic wand, there is a silver bullet, and, and I've mentioned this in, in some of my presentations, and it's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is there even when we turn our back on God. I hated God. I didn't really hate him because I didn't even know, know why I would hate him, but everybody else hated him. And it was like, oh, we hate the Catholics. We hate, you know, we hate God. We didn't even believe in God, but we hated him. Uh, and yet he was there for me. He was there for so many people uh, that I know. You know, there's an organization called Courage, and it's for men and women who want to move beyond their homosexual identity to more complete one in Christ. But if you were my sister or my mother and you would ask, me to change my ways, it'd go in one ear and out the other. So all that you can do is be there, tell him no matter what he does, you will love him. Nothing will ever change that. Even if he commits the most heinous crime, you would visit him in prison because he'll always be your son. We never lose our sons. We never lose our daughters, even after death, because they're always our children. They're God's children and our children. So, so Try not to let it bring you down so much. Just have hope and, 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 and just pray and love him. God bless you, Mary. And we entrust your son to the sacred heart of Jesus. We'll be praying for him, Mary. And Paul, thank you for the hope. We have just about five minutes, but you mentioned Courage International. And I think that's a great takeaway, whether it's Mary or anyone listening and in Courage. And I think it's an apropos name because more than ever, we have to be able to have the courage to be honest, but like you said, with great love. And to beautifully see you share your witness, your faithfulness, your testimony. It really is such a a witness of hope. And so maybe you could give us that action step of how to get involved in courage. What is courage and encourage specifically? Well, when I realized there was a God and the God loved me and I needed to change, change my whole identity. um, I, I, I had no idea where to go. I couldn't talk to my friends because they, they would hate me for not endorsing. Uh, they would consider me a traitor. I couldn't really speak to anybody. And then I heard uh, uh, on a television show about Courage International. And it's for men and women, as I was telling Mary, who want to move beyond their homosexual identity to a more complete one in Christ. And, and it, it really is just absolutely wonderful. Cardinal Sarah, uh, I have a quote from him. He said, these courage men and women testify to the power of grace, the nobility, and the resilience of the human heart. And so what courage is all about is through the guidance of courage chaplains and priests, and it's an international 
a Catholic organization. It's the only Catholic apostolate that has been approved by Rome, and it's the true teachings. And so we're there to support each other and to be friends with each other and encourage each other. And it's it's based on AA, um, Alcoholics Anonymous, because because they know in Alcoholics Anonymous, they admit that there's a greater power and that they've lost control. And so um, I, I became instantly and effortlessly chased um, about 12 years ago now because of prayers and because of, of well, I, because of prayers. And, uh, but, but many, of, many people encouraged are still struggling to find chastity, to follow the true teachings of the church. But through support and through love, I know many, many, many men who have been chased for 20, 30 years or more. That's really powerful, Paul, because so many people say it can't be done. It's impossible. And why would you do that? But kind of going back to what we talked about with Fulton Sheen, repression and expression. If something's disordered and, and you see it, it's, it's, not, it's one thing just to say, I have this orientation, but it's another when you act on it and all the things that go with it and such brokenness that we see and that you talked about and you shared the healing. And again, we just have the last two minutes, but maybe if we could conclude on telling people how to watch Desire of the Everlasting Hills because it's been a film that I've shared and reshared and really myself found so much inspiration in and it's free to stream and as well as maybe a note of hope that you could um, send us off with. Well, uh, the film can be watched uh, through ever it's everlastinghills.org, everlastinghills.org everlastinghillsalloneword.org. It's a 63-minute film, and it's in like nine languages. And um, and the um, I'm not I don't remember what uh, what was the other thing. Oh, that, just about that thirty seconds. Just a note of hope as we wrap up. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, there is so much hope because. Because we're on the right side. Culture is against God. And so which side do we want to be on? If we can step over and, and embrace the Lord, he's with, there, he's with us. We want to be on his side. And, you know, we're not looking, we're not looking to change. We're looking to change our ways. We, there's no miracle that will make us necessarily uh, take our same-sex attraction away. But when will the Catholic Church get with the times, some people say. Kale Clark. Well, the Catholic Church isn't concerned about getting with the times, as Peter Kreeft has said so well. The Church doesn't read the times. She reads the eternities. She's concerned about the end times and your eternal soul. She is only concerned with saving your soul and mine. She has no authority to change the teachings of her Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Now, other Christian communities think they have the authority to change those teachings of Jesus. And the irony is that people are always complaining the Catholic Church is constantly trying to impose its authority over my life. The Catholic Church actually claims to have far less authority than these other groups do. The Catholic Church is the faithful spouse who will never commit spiritual contraception or divorce by imbibing the potions of our age, changing our Lord's teachings to suit the ways of the world. Bringing Christ to the world through the media. Relevant Radio.